It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Bruce has just gotten a whole lot richer. The boss, Bruce Springsteen, selling the rights to his music to Sony, to Sony Music Entertainment, in a deal valued at may be more than $500 million. This hasn't been officially announced. The New York Times has a story. Think about that. Half a billion dollars for Springsteen's work. Uh, this includes, uh, you know, the songs he actually recorded, plus everything he's written as a songwriter. I mean, we're talking here, Born to Run, Born in the USA, Blinded by the Light, but the time story leaves out some good ones. Rosalita, Thunder Road, 10th Avenue, Freeze Out. I could go on. Um, and this, of course, has been a trend now with uh, rock stars, aging rock stars. There are no other kind, I guess, if you're talking about people who gave the prominence in the 60s and 70s who have sold all or part of their work for prices sometimes, you know, fetching hundreds of millions of dollars. Bob Dylan has done it, Paul Simon, Stevie Nicks, Neil Young. I heard an interview with David Crosby the other day on Rob Lowe's podcast, which is a terrific podcast, by the way, uh, in which Crosby said he didn't have any choice. He needed the money because um, he couldn't tour because of COVID, and you can't really make much money in these days of streaming and downloading by putting out what we used to call albums, and then they became CDs. Anyway, it goes on and on and on the list. Um, Getting back to Springsteen, um, Rob Stringer uh, a few months ago uh, said his company has spent $1.4 billion on acquiring these songwriting categories, uh, catalogs just in the last six months. Uh, Actually, the most shocking paragraph in this story is Springsteen, 72, has been with Columbia Records, a unit of Sony Music, for the entirety of his five-decade career. Decade career. Bruce Springsteen is 72? What? But here's the thing. Um, what this story doesn't tell me, what I don't fully understand, not being an economics major, is how is it worth it to Sony or anybody else who does this to acquire this? I mean, yes, you can take the music and sell it for some car commercials, Right. And I guess people buy music, so you get that. But I don't see how, there must be a reason, you know, they're not in the business of being a charitable foundation, so they must think they can make money once they own the collected works of Dylan or Simon or Young or Crosby or Springsteen. But I'd like to know more about how that works. All right, I'm going to call a foul on myself having to do with Steph Curry, because I gave you the buildup the day before talking about this uh, fascinating uh, chart, graphic-laden piece about Steph Curry about to break the record for three-pointers, the most in NBA history. Um, and then when he did it, I didn't get a chance to talk about it because there was so much else going on. But a lot of the basketball world paying tribute to Curry. And the thing about this is, it's not just that an individual athlete broke the record. It's the way in which Steph Curry transformed the game of professional basketball. Uh, I remember one thing from that article, which was that half of his shots, 50% of his attempts from the field are in three-point range. Uh, and it's, you know, it's an incredible sharpshooting thing. I mean, in the old days, you know, every shot was worth two points. And then I think it was copied from the old ABA. But anyway, the three-point rule came into existence. Completely transformed the game. And nobody's ever done it like Curry. The guy just practices like hell. It's just, he's just an amazingly disciplined athlete. So congratulations to him. 
And now that we've gotten that out of the way, there's a lot of stuff here to cover on today's podcast. Number one, all this stuff, that's a technical term, all this stuff coming out from the January 6th committee, it is almost hard to keep up. One of the latest texts comes from Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, who on January 5th of this year, the day before the January 6th riot at the Capitol, texted Mark Meadows. You know what? Meadows, for a guy who's resisting the subpoena, has been held in contempt and could actually face Justice Department prosecution, uh, turned over a lot of stuff voluntarily. Anyway, the text from Meadows, excuse me, the text to Meadows from Jordan the day before the riot uh, was sending along this legal memo uh, from a conservative lawyer who once was a national security advisor on Trump's 2016 campaign, arguing that and most legal scholars say this is BS, again, that's the technical term, uh, that Mike Pence had the authority as vice president to interfere in the certification of the Electoral College. Obviously, in my view, the great legal consensus, he didn't have the authority. Pence concluded he didn't have the authority. He didn't do so. Um, but Jordan, uh, spokesman for Jordan, is just telling Politico that well, all he did was forward it. Mr. Jordan forwarded the text to Mr. Meadows. Mr. Meadows certainly knew it was a forward. Okay, well, what did this thing say? It began by saying on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. In accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedents. Well, the Hamilton references, as I have read in scholarly articles, you know, kind of a load of crap. Um, the New York Times has this, you know, deep dive, because what's happening is the committee is leaking this stuff, a couple of texts a day, and it's very deliberate. The Democrats on the committee, and using Liz Cheney sometimes as the spokeswoman, she's, of course, the vice chair, um, want to generate cable news segments every day, want to generate headlines every day. They could hold all this stuff when they have their hearings and create this grand narrative, but then a lot of it gets lost. And now, are they doing this to uh, not only get coverage, but inflict maximum damage on the GOP and Donald Trump? Yes, of course. That's how partisan politics works. So just to give you the flavor of this Times piece, it goes on for about a zillion words. Two days after Christmas last year, Richard Donahue, a top DOJ official, remember this is the last three weeks, roughly, of the Trump administration, uh, saw an unknown number appear on his phone. Trump had been giving out Donahue's cell phone number uh, so that people could pass on rumors or accounts of election fraud. Well, this latest call was from another member of Congress, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, who began pressing the president's case. Perry said he had compiled a dossier, where have we heard that word before, of voter fraud allegations that the DOJ needed to vet. Jeffrey Clark, a Justice Department lawyer who had found favor with Trump, could do something about Trump's claims, said Perry even if others in the department, in other words, Bill Barr, who may have just left by that point, would not. Here's the key paragraph. The message was delivered by an obscure lawmaker who was doing Trump's bidding. Justice Department officials viewed it as an outrageous political pressure uh, from White House that had become consumed by conspiracy theories. It was an example of how a half a dozen right-wing members of Congress became key foot soldiers in Trump's effort to overturn the election. And then it lists these people. They include Jim Jordan. They include Andy Biggs of uh, Arizona. They include Paul Gosar of Arizona. This is the guy who recently had his committee assignment stripped by the Democrats because he had posted that Japanese animation 
showing him his head on some character, um, killing AOC and stabbing President Biden. Uh, also in this gang, according to the Times, Louis Gohmert of Texas uh, and Mo Brooks of Alabama. And it goes on to say that the particular allegations of voter fraud that were passed on in the lead example turned out not to have any substance, which was often the case. It was just all of these rumors. Well, if you look into the voting machines, if you look into this, if you look into that, and it would either turn out to be nothing or so minor, so small, uh, that it wouldn't have changed the Electoral College results in these particular states. Now, yesterday on the podcast, um, in the interests of fairness and balance, uh, I read to you what Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity said on Fox News the previous night, defending themselves after their own text came out in which they were urging Meadows to get Trump to do something to stop the violence and saying things in these texts like, um, you know, he's destroying his legacy. He's got to do this. Um, and the third Fox News opinion host, who is getting an awful lot of bad press here because of those texts, is Brian Kilmeade, the co-host of Fox & Friends. Uh, I've since seen some things that Kilmeade said on his radio show the day after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Because the whole um, narrative that the mainstream media are pushing is that while these Fox people were texting Meadows and saying, you got to do something, you got to get Trump to stop the violence, they were taking a different stance in public. And you can go through what they said, and it's fair game to say, well, they said this, and look, they they're all have tended to be sympathetic to President Trump. There's no question about that. But as I read yesterday from Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity, they also said very similar things on the air, including that Trump was hurting his own reputation and legacy, that they said in the text. Well, now we have this from the Kill Me radio show. Not what he's saying now, what he said at the time, the next time he was on the air. Kilmey said, the president's speech lit the fire. Rudy Giuliani did not help. The fallout for the president might be something he cannot overcome. Brian Kilmeade said that publicly. It wasn't just what he was saying about Trump's legacy in a text, a private text to Mark Meadows. Uh, Kilmeade also said on January 7th, the president did not think that breach was going to happen, but when it did happen, he did not act quick enough. And then Kilmeade said, there's no way I'm going to insincerely say it was not Donald Trump's fault that this happened. So the New York Times has a story today sort of catching up with the defense by Hannity and Ingram. Um, and it has a couple of quotes from each of them. Okay. The two said that in their view, the pro-Trump seize on January 6th, uh, which rioters breached and entered the Capitol building, police officers were injured, millions of dollars of damage was done, and one rioter was fatally shot, was similar to previous instances of civil unrest, adding that it had been overblown by other news media outlets. Okay, so what the Times is doing is saying, well, here's some other things they said that were more pro-Trump or more, you know, there's other violence that is equally important or more important. And you can do that. When somebody's on the air a lot, you can cherry pick. And I'm not, again, you know, people want to criticize, that's fine. But what the New York Times story did not do was to quote from Laura Ingram's texts, from what Hannity said on the air last night, that did tend to bolster their case that they were saying some similar things to what they had texted Meadows. You know, be fair with the audience. 
be fair with the readers. Allow the people who are under fire to make their case, and then you can say, however, they did X, Y, and Z, and here's why, you know, you, know, you can give your take, your spin, your analysis. Uh, so what I'm trying to do here is prevent both sides. All right, number two. Uh, man, the uh, business with the virus and the Omicron variant is really heating up. I just saw today uh, that it is, even though it seems to be milder, it spreads as much as, I've read seven times as fast as the Delta variant, and I've read 70 times as fast. I don't know exactly which statistics uh, should be believed, but clearly this thing spreads like wildfire. But here's a piece of National Review. I don't agree with a lot of this, but I want to share it with you. Uh, it begins, not subtly, by saying the public health community is behaving like the mafia. You get it? They're just a bunch of mobsters. They come offering protection. They control the politicians. That's an interesting thought. And they threaten businesses that don't accede to their demands. Led by boss Anthony Fauci. Oh, so he's the consigliere. And comprising many federal, state, and local officials. Well, I'm glad that was mentioned because most of these decisions on masks, on mandates, not all, but most of them are made by governors and mayors and county executives. So I'm glad National Review is recognizing that have exploited the COVID pandemic to orchestrate a campaign of fear and intimidation to consolidate their power. They have no plans to give any of it up. So this whole approach, and you know, I try to provide all sides here, that these power-hungry bureaucrats and politicians are seizing on the pandemic to do things that, you know, National Review and many others don't agree with because they like power and they want to consolidate power. I just don't get it. Do you think that these, uh, whether it's President Biden or these Democratic mayors or these Democratic governors, enjoy pissing off their constituents by saying you can't go into a restaurant or fitness center without wearing a mask? Uh, do you think they enjoy uh, telling businesses what to do? I mean, maybe some people think so. I think they're trying to save lives. Now, they certainly might be more prone to government intervention than many Republican office holders. But I, I think their motives are, you know, nobody wants to be the Dr. No of this. I, I think they are doing this because they think it is the best thing for the people who voted for them. So now National Review calls it a protection racket based on the conceit that if we simply do as they command, we will vanquish COVID. Uh, it started with the now infamous 15 days to slow the spread and then flattening the curve to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed. By the way, some hospitals now today, again, are being overwhelmed. This is surprising to me because the numbers aren't as high as they were, say, last January. In Maryland, most hospital beds have filled up, and then Maryland is now, uh, health officials are now advising uh, their hospitals to put off uh, elective surgery, wherever you heard that before. And then if the numbers get even a little bit higher to go into some kind of pandemic plan, and Maryland's not the only place this is happening. Okay, back to National Review. The medical Cosa Nostra still insists that people who are fully vaccinated and boosted need to wear masks in public, even though they initially convinced people that masks were ineffective. Um, I agree that that goes too far. If you've been vaccinated and you're outside, unless you're outside in a very dense crowd, I don't think you need to wear a mask. You can choose to do so. Um, Peace goes on to say, it's not just the public. Um, any politician who defies the orders of the public health community can expect blistering media coverage whenever there's a surge in cases, as has been the case with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 
politicians who follow public health guidelines might not be protecting their constituents from the virus, but they are protecting themselves from getting blamed, such as with the New York's new governor, Kathy Hochul, um, who just implemented a bunch of new uh, COVID-related rules. There, there lies the essence of control of political leaders. The current COVID surge, which has been well openly reported on, isn't being framed as Biden's fault. This is playing off a couple of comments by Chuck Todd because he has agreed to defer to the experts. He's granted protection, and any blame for the persistence of COVID is targeted at those who are challenging his mandates. Now, the mandate thing is fair game to, to discuss. But here's the question I would ask. If politicians are deferring to the scientists at the FDA and the CDC, and by the way, uh, they're not always right either. I get that. But what's the alternative? The alternative is to make politicians who are not experts in this field make these decisions on their own. Well, to some extent, they do. They have to take the raw data and they have to balance that against the economic impact of lockdowns or shutdowns or severely limiting who can go where or into what businesses they can frequent. Uh, that's true. But on the other hand, if you don't follow the science, if you don't defer to the scientists, at least on the substance, then you get the kind of criticism that Donald Trump got, that he was overriding the scientists, that he was bringing in new scientists who would do what he wanted or at least back up what he was saying. Um, and so it's kind of a no-win situation. But, you know, the idea that they're just a bunch of mobsters trying to protect themselves around a protection racket I think is pretty harsh. It's interesting reading. Maybe you agree. But I wanted to put it out there. This brings me to a piece in The Atlantic. And I read a couple of pieces in The Atlantic the other day about, oh, you know, the pandemic's really over. And if you live in rural areas, you don't pay attention to it. And if you're a member of Generation Z, you know, you're really not even following the coverage of COVID. Well, here's a piece by a woman in the very same magazine saying, my breakthrough infection, because she's vaccinated, started with a scratchy throat a few days before Thanksgiving because I'm vaccinated and just tested negative two days earlier. I brushed it off as just a cold. Got checked a few days later, positive. The result felt like a betrayal after 18 months of reporting on the pandemic. In other words, it could even happen to the reporters who cover COVID. I walked home from the testing center. I realized I had no clue what to do next. How would I isolate myself in a shared apartment? Why wait 10 days like the doctor at the testing site had advised? Should I get tested again? Uh, my partner who tested negative dragged a sleeping bag to the couch. Masks came on, the windows went up, flights were canceled. You know, it's no fun to get this. But, you know, the thing is, if you're vaccinated, you're not probably, almost definitely going to be hospitalized. You're not going to face the prospect of dying. Remember that 800,000 Americans have died from this deadly and frustrating disease? Uh, now that the Omicron variant is here, says the Atlantic writer, many more Americans may soon have to deal with this breakthrough confusion. We do know it's spreading fast. What should you do? So she quotes one expert from the University of Minnesota as saying, look, people are perplexed partly because I think the guidance is confusing. In fact, the CDC's guidelines are pretty limited. Isolate if you've either tested positive in the past 10 days or experiencing symptoms. End your isolation after 10 days only if you've gone 24 hours with no fever. And your symptoms are improving. Now here's, to me, the most important sentence in the piece. The reporter says, when I reached out to the CDC for comment on its guidance for breakthroughs, a spokesperson pointed me back to the recommendations on the agency's website. Has there been a federal agency that is as bad at communicating 
as the Centers for Disease Control in the Biden administration? I mean, this is a major magazine that obviously influences coverage elsewhere, and nobody could get on the phone and answer questions. This is his, which is, you know, when you, when you get this, like, I refer you back to what we said on the website, it's basically no comment. It's basically screw you. It drives me nuts. Here's somebody trying to practice responsible journalism, and the CDC won't say anything. Well, no wonder people are confused and perplexed. No wonder they're not sure what to do. And look, there's this other element. We all, many of us, it's 61% now. It's gone up a percent. 61% of us in America got fully vaccinated. And then we learned there could be breakthrough infections. And by the way, there was never a promise that you would be free forever. But the promise was that you wouldn't be hospitalized and you wouldn't face dying if you got fully vaccinated. But now that it's more likely that you could get COVID from this Omicron, which it's the, there's still mixed signals here on whether or not how effective or how less effective the vaccines are against this variant, um, it's kind of a head-slapping moment. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right. Got a lot more to get to here. Let me deal with number three. Senate Democrats have basically given up on pushing through the $2 trillion trillion tax and spending bill before Christmas. Remember, you know, they made the deal to get the infrastructure bill. Now they can't get it. They don't have the votes. President Joe Manchin says he's not doing it. So what are they doing? They're shifting their focus to voting rights. So now even Biden is saying, well, he hopes that uh, they will pass this, but if they don't, we really ought to work on voting rights. You know, you can understand why voting rights, given what Republican-controlled state legislatures are doing, is a very big issue to the Democratic Party. But first of all, this is an absolute disaster for the Dems. They can't get it by Christmas. I read one story that said, well, they'll do it early next year. If they don't do it early next year, maybe by spring. You think that this $2 trillion bill is going to pass next spring as we're into the heart of the midterms? I don't. I think it may never pass. You know, you never know what they can pull out. Uh, Joe Manchin was kind of ticked off. Reporters asked him about it being about one of the major things he's objecting to, according to reports, is another year extension of the child tax credit. He said, no, he's not opposed to it. These are bad rumors. But other reports say he is opposed to it or he wants it greatly reduced. Uh, Who knows? Anyway, here's a Washington Post story saying Senate Democrats are scrambling to find a way to pass in the coming weeks voting rights legislation. The problem is, in order to do that, they have to get, they have to waive the filibuster. The aforementioned Senator Manchin and the not-yet-mentioned Senator Kirsten Cinema are both opposed to waiving the filibuster for just about anything. Maybe Manchin would go along. He kind of likes the new scaled-down voting rights bill. Cinema is a pretty hardliner on saying this would be... And she actually confirmed it uh, in some kind of statement in the last 24 hours. So you have these reporters, they just never give up. Well, the Democrats are now going to try X. Well, it's a meaningless story... No Republicans are going to vote to waive the filibuster to to pass a voting rights bill that the GOP sees as favoring the Dems. And if you have, forget about Manchin, if you have Cinema coming out and saying, no, it's a bad idea to waive the filibuster because one day we're going to be in the minority, maybe it's Manchin who used that language, then it's not going to happen. It is not going to pass. Now, maybe there's something here I'm not getting, but there's a reason it hasn't passed all year. Um, And so... Once you report that, you don't have much of a story, I think. All right, a couple of the interesting items to get to, your, uh, to on the podcast here. Number four, uh, the incoming mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, uh, former NYPD captain. Uh, interesting thing about him in Politico, and he takes office in just about two weeks. 
succeeding Bill de Blasio. Uh, Politico, as it says, New Yorkers have chosen, this is a reference to Mike Bloomberg, another wellness zealot. Uh, uh, Adams has traded jelly donuts for kale smoothies. About five years ago, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Completely changed uh, his diet, lost 35 pounds, uh, reversed some vision loss and nerve damage that he had. Great for him. This is terrific. And he became a national spokesperson for a plant-based lifestyle. Uh, I think he put out some kind of cookbook slash, you know, memoir. He has likened soul food to slave food on a recent podcast. He is vowing to build clinics in low-income neighborhoods that lack access to top-tier hospitals. So he wants to use the powers of the mayoralty to convince people to eat healthier. Now, if he gets to the point where he's kind of an official nanny, then I don't think, you know, remember Bloomberg with his super sodas and all the things that were bad for you? You know, people can get tired of that. On the other hand, um, he says he's going to... um, clean up city-funded food programs. In other words, no more processed school lunches, no more, uh, according to this piece. So he told this Politico in an interview last year, no more sugary drinks for public hospital patients, no more junk food for detainees in city jails. I don't know, if you're stuck in jail, like, you know, I kind of feel like you should be able to eat candy bars or whatever. Uh, you should not be leaving jail unhealthy, Adam says. You should not be in a homeless shelter where I am feeding you on taxpayers' dime Food like chicken nuggets. So we'll see how that goes over. I mean, I agree with the sentiment. It would be nice if everybody ate healthy, but is the government, can the government force you? Well, the government can't force you if you're not a school kid or a prisoner in jail or living in a homeless shelter, but the government can control the menu in these kind of public-funded activities. Uh, so we'll see how that plays. He's an interesting guy in a lot of ways. You know, a guy who wants to get tough on crime as a former cop. But, and I think that's why he won the election. Um, but is liberal in other ways. And I think he's gonna, you're going to be hearing so much more about Eric Adams because every mayor of New York City almost instantly like that becomes a national figure. I mean, going back to John Lindsay, uh, Ed Koch, Mike Bloomberg, Rudy Giuliani, Bill de Blasio. Almost all of them end up running for president one day because when you're in New York City and you're in that liberal bubble, you think that your programs can catch fire nationally. And all of them to date, at least, let's see, does this go back to, uh, well, I guess Teddy Roosevelt was not the mayor, but he was an official in New York. Um, Almost all of them have failed. Because New York City is not America, obviously, and you just have that sort of aura of being a big city liberal, whether you are or not, even for Republicans. I mean, as a Republican, to get elected in New York City, as Bloomberg originally was, as Rudy Giuliani was and is, you know, you got to be a pretty liberal Republican in order to do that. But, you know, look at Rudy. I'm covered his 2008 campaign, you know, the hero of 9-11, and he went nowhere. Leading in the polls for a while and went nowhere. De Blasio... It was a complete flame-out. All right, finally, number five. I talked uh, earlier this week about Time Magazine naming Elon Musk the person of the year, despite a lot of controversies involving him personally, Tesla, SpaceX, a lot of which was in the Time story. So now, in the wake of this, it just shows you. You get your, your face on a cover, people shooting you. Rhetorically speaking, of course. 
Elizabeth Warren has decided to get herself some publicity by going after Elon Musk. She's not a big fan of really rich people. Uh, or, I guess, in fairness to her, the senator would say really rich people who, in her view, don't f- pay their fair share of taxes. So she tweeted, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. And Musk, who's very active on Twitter, sometimes to his detriment, gets on the Twitter and says, stop projecting. You remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. <laughs> One of the things you have to like about Musk is he kind of talks like a real person. But then he says, you know, I'm going to sell my, some of my Tesla stock and the SEC goes crazy. Uh, and then Musk said, please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. So he evokes the old Karen thing. And every time I see that, I think, I just feel for all the women who are named Karen, who may be perfectly nice people. Okay, so Elizabeth Warren, she says, okay, you know, maybe I'm going to run for president again. Or, you know, in any event, I need some good plus. So she goes on Joy Reid's show on MSNBC, and she says, look, Musk is opposed to Biden's Build Back Better agenda. So now we get a real picture of it. They disagree politically. But then, and Joy Reid then gets into line and says Rusk, uh, Musk is the absolute worst person. This was the old Keith Olbermann, worst person in the world shtick. You know, it makes the base happy, but it's obviously a little oversimplified. But uh, Senator Warren says that, um, citing a ProPublica report, in 2018, Elon Musk paid nothing in federal income taxes, less than 70000 in 2015 and 2017. She says, the world's richest freeloader evidently has a very thin skin. So the insults are flying. He's knocking her. She's knocking him. I guess it's actually kind of entertaining, but with a a serious veneer beneath it, which is, you know, should the rich pay more in terms of income taxes because there's so many loopholes? What about these companies that get away with paying any income taxes? I'm looking at you, Amazon, at least in the past. You know, versus a senator going after somebody because he's a zillionaire, world's richest person, in fact, if I might clarify that, uh, who doesn't support the Biden agenda the way Elizabeth Warren does. And so with that, we'll take a little pause here for a little uh, bit of self-promotion. I always say, you know, you can get this podcast on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, on Apple iTunes. Hope you enjoy it. We like doing it. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.